All right, so I'm convinced of something, something that I've learned in my life. I'm convinced that Satan usually will send his strongest attack when we are doing well. Satan tends to, to send his strongest attack when we are, our, our life is good, when we're blessed, when we're in success. It seems to me that's when Satan hits the hardest. Now, that doesn't necessarily make sense. It would make more sense that Satan would hit us when we're down. You know, like when we're down, when we're the weakest, isn't that the right time for Satan to come and, and try and trip us up? But when you think about this, when we're struggling through life, when we have difficulty and, and, and trial and, and these things in front of us, what happens is we become dependent on God. When we're in our weakest, when we're struggling, we realize, man, I can't do this alone. I need God in my life. In fact, most of our stories come where we came to know Jesus because we were Broken because we had this hardship and we realized I need God's presence in my life. And so I find that it's during those times of success. It's during the times of, of blessing that that's when we begin to exhibit pride and arrogance. And that seems to be when Satan comes and hits the hardest. For example, uh, a couple years ago before we planted the church, Samantha and I applied for membership in something called the Acts 29 Church Planning Network. This is a uh, global church planning network that kind of just looks to um, uh, support church planners and plant more churches across the globe. And so for us to be a part of this organization, we had to go through this uh, major assessment where I had to write down, um, you know, theological convictions. And I, uh, they wanted to look at our finances. They wanted to look at every part of our marriage, every part of our lives to see if we were uh, candidates that they would support in planning a church. And in fact, one of the things they did is they brought us into a room and that we had to go through this uh, multi-hour assessment. And so the way this works is my wife and I are sitting in two chairs and across the table, there are four different men who are sitting there asking questions about every part of our life. Everything I've written, everything that we've done, they're asking questions and trying to, to peel back the layers to see, hey, is this a couple that God's hand is on? Is this a couple that would be successful in planning a church? And so... We're in there, and one of the things they asked, they said, tell us about your marriage. Now, Samantha and I, we had a pretty good marriage. I mean, we didn't have any major issues. I mean, as, as all couples, we had our, our growing pains. We learned some things as we're going along. And, and we were in this assessment, and the realization that we had made is our marriage has probably never been better. You know, emotionally, uh, spiritually, physically, we were just doing really well. And we're looking and saying, man, this is great. This is, this is, you know, our marriage is in a really good spot. And I remember one of the assessors said this. They said, I'm going to warn you right now. Your marriage is going to get attacked. And I said, no way. No way. We, 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 we love where things are right now. This is, there's no way that anything's going to come between us. Well, sure enough, we get into the process of church planning. And it felt like little things begin to creep up. It feels like there's, there's just a little bit of a strain, like, like nothing major, but just one of those things where we can't get on the same page, where, where little things become big things. And, and we both just felt this increased distance in our marriage. So I'm convinced that it's times of success and blessing when things are good, that Satan tries his hardest to bring us down. Maybe you've seen this in your life. Maybe you've experienced this in your own life. 
where things are going good, then all of a sudden it's like the carpet's pulled out from underneath you. And you're like, what just happened? I'm not sure if we see this played out any more beautifully than in the life of King David. We've been in this series of the life of King David. Uh, We've called the series Pursuing God's Heart. And David becomes an example for you and I on how we can become men and women who pursue God's heart, who could be called men and women after God's own heart. And he's he's been a great example for us. We've seen time and time again where David begins to teach us what that looks like. But today, today we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12. If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to uh, get there. You can go on your phone or whatever else you have if you have a Bible in your hand. If you need a Bible, we've got an usher in the back. Just slip your hand up. He'll come and, and bring one up to you. Um, in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and verse 12, we're going to, chapter 11 and 12, we're going to see a, a transition in David's story. You see, as we've studied through uh, the, the, so far in the life of David, specifically in the book of 2 Samuel, we've seen David be very successful. This has been nothing but a success story. I mean, when you look at the story of 2 Samuel chapters 1 through 10, David is at an all-time high. David is now king over a united kingdom. He's king over Israel. Uh, David has gone in and said, Jerusalem, we want Jerusalem to be our capital city. And gone in and taken the city captive and it's become their, their headquarters. They went and they got the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God. And they brought it back into Jerusalem to make it a central part of their, of their life. Then we've seen David, he's gone through a, a series of, of victories on the battlefield. They had, they had a, a victory over the Philistines and the Ammonites and the Syrians. And so David is, is in that moment where he's just having success in everything he does. So far in 2 Samuel, this is a success story of David. He's reached the peak of public admiration. David's got plenty of money. He's got incredible power as king over Israel. He's got unquestioned authority and remarkable fame. And you know, if if David's story ended right here, it would sound very much like a fairy tale that we tell our kids. You know, one of those fairy tales, everybody lives happily ever after. And those stories are wonderful. And my kids love to dream about those stories. But I'm not sure how many of those stories are real. And then I I look at David's life and I'm trying to say, what can I learn from it? If his story ended there like a fairy tale, I'm not sure how much I would connect with David's story. Because fairy tales are not the life that I've lived. I've lived life where there is hardship. There is difficulty. And so a fairy tale doesn't necessarily connect with me. But here, David's story is going to take a turn in chapter 11. We're going to see David not as the wonderful, charming, Prince Charming, who can do no wrong, we're going to begin to see David give in to Satan. We're going to see him give in to sin. And not just one sin, but we're talking sin after sin after sin. And this is why I am drawn to David's story. Because David's story is not a fairy tale. It's not a happily ever after. Nobody has any problems. His story is just like mine. And probably like yours. David struggled through sin. And yet somehow through sin, David is known as a man after God's own heart. And if we read through David's story today, we see what happened. If he could be called a man after God's own heart through that story, then that gives me hope. 
And I hope that gives you hope that you and I can be men and women after God's own heart. Here's the thing, though. We're going to be honest. The main point of this message is not about sin. It's not about sin and all the things we've done wrong. The main point, the lesson that David's going to teach us on becoming a man and a woman after God's own heart is not related to David's sin. Rather, it's what David does when he's confronted by his sin. David is going to teach us that a man or woman after God's own heart is going to show a repentant heart when they are confronted with their sin. So I'm going to ask you just to join me in prayer as we jump in today. God, I'm thankful for the story of David. And I'm thankful, God, that it's not a fairy tale. I'm thankful, God, that it's something that most of us can connect with. And God, I pray that as we hear the story of David today, that God, we will see how it fits into our lives, that we will see ourselves in this story. That God, we may not sin like David did. We may not do the same things that David did, but God, we do sin. God, we do struggle. God, we do fail time and time again. And God, I pray that you would help us to see what it looks like to have a repentant heart, what it looks like to be forgiven. God, that's what a Christian is. Not somebody who lives a fairy tale. It's somebody who has been forgiven because they have a repentant heart. God, I pray that you will work in our hearts today, that you would stir us and draw us closer to you, God. We love you and we praise you and we ask this in your name. Amen. Now, as I think about the struggle with success and I think about why is it so easy for Satan to begin to trip us up during success. And I think sometimes it's because we stop doing the things that brought us success. And if we were to look at the rise and fall of David, we could see some of this. When we look at the rise of David, the first thing that we saw about David, he was a he was an eager, holy warrior. We think about his story, what we've learned so far. David was, was, was passionate about fighting for God. We think about the story of David and Goliath. Goliath is out there. He's taunting all the Israelites. He's, he's defaming their God. And all the soldiers and all the, the king saw, everybody's afraid of Goliath. And in walks David, who's just a young shepherd boy. He's only there to bring his brother's lunch. But in walks David, and he hears the Philistine arguing and fighting against his God and defaming his God. And he says, no, I'll volunteer. I'll go fight the Goliath. I'm just a shepherd boy but I will go and defend the honor of my God. We see this all throughout the battles that David is involved in. He is looking to, to defend who God is. He is fighting for God. This was part of his success. But chapter 11, we're going to see David's no longer an eager, holy warrior. We're actually going to see that David chooses to take, um, I, I think this was from the movie Annie, the easy street, David chooses to take the easy street. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. And it says, In the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. See, in those days... The kings led their armies out into battle. I mean, David had done this for years. The victories that the Philistines or the Israelites had just experienced over the Philistines and over the Anamites, David is out front leading the army. But not today. 
David says, you know, I'm going to take the easy street. I'm going to just kick back, lounge in bed, enjoy myself. We're not told why David stays behind. But David decides, I'm going to stay behind. I'm going to send Joab out. I'm going to send the army out. And I'm going to stay back here in Jerusalem. Watch what happens next. Verse 2. It says, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. I wonder what he's getting up from his couch for. Probably taking a nap. And was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof, that he saw from a roof, a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent the messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. And she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. I want you to think about this. What would have happened if David would have gone out to battle like he was supposed to do? This whole story of Bathsheba never would have happened if David had just been doing what he was supposed to be doing. See, our greatest battles and struggles don't usually come when we're working hard. They come when we have some leisure time. They come when we've got time on our hands. They come when we're bored. They come when we're idle. All too often, it's those times that we are idle, that we make those fateful decisions that we regret down the road and that come back to haunt us. I'm not sure who said this, but somebody has said, idle hands are the devil's workshop. And that is absolutely true. David should have been doing the things he was supposed to do. He should have been out with the army. He should have been leading them. He should have been there. What about you? What about the things that you are supposed to do? We think about what are the things we're supposed to do? We're supposed to grow our relationship with Christ. We're supposed to grow in our faith. Every one of us is supposed to be doing that. We're supposed to work. Men, work hard. Uh, we're, supposed to, we're supposed to take care of our families and, and, and be good fathers and good mothers and good sons and good daughters. And, and, and those things are supposed to be good to our family. We're supposed to be good church members. We're supposed to be involved in serving in the church. And yet what I find is when I am doing all the things I'm supposed to be doing, I come home at the end of the day and I'm tired because I've been working hard doing the things that I'm supposed to be doing. And what happens when we begin to skirt some of those responsibilities, we begin to take the easy road and say, I'm not going to do this because we, we justify and say, well, I need some time for me. I need some time for myself. And, and pretty soon we're spending hours a day on ourselves. And we're not doing the things we're supposed to be doing. Idle hands are the devil's workshop. We should be proud if we go to the end of our day and climb into bed exhausted. Because we know we've been doing the things we're supposed to be doing. I want to just... The message isn't about lust, but I think this is an opportunity to bring it up. Frederick uh, Buchner said that lust is like salt to a man dying of thirst. Men, you have no reason looking at women who are half naked or more. 
And I know we live in a society where, 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 where uh, pornography, and it, it's just in your pocket, on your cell phone. It is so rampant in our society. Men, you have no reason looking at that stuff. That is like salt to a man dying of thirst. It will be your destruction. And women, I think this involves you as well. See, I don't think Bathsheba was, was innocent, an innocent player in this story. I don't think she just happened to be out on her porch that morning hoping that nobody noticed her. I mean, we noticed David. I don't think David forced her into having a one-night stand with him. She was a willing partner. Whether or not she was trying to gain David's attention or maybe somebody else's, she was careless. She lacked any sort of modesty. Ladies, you may not know this, but men are visual. Men are visual. I don't care what your husband says. Men are visual. We're drawn by what we see through our eyes. In fact, there's a, there's a statistic I read a number of years ago that if you have 10 men, if you have 10 men, okay, and there's a scale of 1 to 10 regarding lust, 1 being a man who has very little struggle with it at all, it's not a problem, and 10 being a man who's completely consumed with lust. If you have 10 men, every one of those numbers will be filled by one of those men. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Think about that. Think about that. Men, you need to resist lust at every cost. Ladies, would you be considerate of the men around you, of the way that you dress, of the modesty? And I know we, we say, well, well, this is just the fashion. This is what looks good today. I know, but you called to a higher standard than just what looks good today. When you become careless with your modesty, ladies, you become a stumbling block to the men around you. That was my rabbit trail. Forgive me for that. So David, we saw David, when he was rising to success, he was rising there because he was an eager, holy warrior for God. And now we see him choosing the easy street, choosing to have idle time, time for himself. And it leads him into a very dangerous place. It leads him into sin. The second thing, though, we see about the rise of David is we got to think back and remember, remember how hard David fought to protect Saul's life. Remember when David's on the run and he's in the cave and Saul's there relieving himself and the soldiers say, David, this is your opportunity. Kill him. He's been pursuing us for, for all this time. Kill him, David. And David says, no, I will not raise a hand against the Lord's anointed. I'm not going to kill this man in cold blood. That's not right. I cannot do that. We saw this in David's life, but my oh my, how things change. Because David, he's now got a mess on his hands. Because of his sin with Bathsheba, she becomes pregnant. And he says, I gotta, I gotta come with a plan to deal with this. And so we're gonna see David begin where he once used to protect Saul's life. We're gonna see David plot Uriah's murder, which is Bathsheba's husband. It says in verse 6 So David sent word to Joab, said, Send me her Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah had come to him, David asked Joab how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. David's idea was this. 
Uriah, you're out in battle. I'm sure you're lonely. I'm sure you miss your wife. I'm going to bring you home. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to woo you. I'm going to say, Hey, how's things going? And then I'm going to send you home. So you will enjoy the fruits of your marriage for a night before I send you back out into battle. Because then if you are, are with your wife, Hey, no one will ask a question. But where David was once noble, Uriah is now the noble one. Because Uriah knows that there's no way he's going to go and, and, and experience the blessing of his wife. He's going to experience the, the, the relationship with his wife when he knows his comrades are out on the battlefield risking their life. He knows where he belongs. He says, I belong out there with them. I shouldn't be here. I'm not going to go and, and, and experience this, this, this relaxation when I should be out with my comrades. And so David says, oh, crap, what am I going to do now? Reverse the plan B. It says in verse 12, Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he became drunk. Great idea, David! You, you get Uriah drunk, and then you send him home, and there's no way he'll be able to resist his wife. Again, David, or Uriah, is the noble man. Uriah is too loyal to his comrades on the field, and he's not going to go and fall into David's plan. David's panic-stricken. What if this gets out? What if, what if everybody finds out? What, what, what am I going to do? So where David once protected Saul's life, we're going to see David actively plot Uriah's death. This is in verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And the letter he wrote set Uriah on the forefront of the hardest fighting, then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. David writes a letter to the commander. says, put Uriah out front. And when he's out there, everybody drop back. So that not only, not only did David write this letter, but he gave the letter to Uriah to carry to the, the commander. I mean, Uriah is carrying his, his, his death sentence to the, the commander of the army. And unfortunately, David's plan plays out exactly like he wanted. Uriah is killed in battle. But it's not only Uriah who's killed in that battle. There are, are other soldiers who end up dying as well. Many people paid the price for David's sin on that battlefield. And yet David can become callous. This is what David says in response to Uriah's death. He says, do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. He's saying, you know what? Don't worry about Uriah's death. People die all the time in battle. Uriah's death was hardly the result of war. Uriah's death was a result of David's sin with Bathsheba. And then David's sin of trying to cover up that sin with Bathsheba. Rather than falling before God, confessing his sin before God, David takes matters into his own hands, tries to cover up his sin. And then David just decides to move on. Instead of making things right, he says, you know what, let's just move on. And Bathsheba, she mourns for her husband for a period of time. And after she's done mourning for him, David takes Bathsheba as his wife. She gives birth to a son. Nobody asks a question. Nobody bats an eye. And everything seems fine. Except 
for the 10 most devastating words in this passage. Chapter 27, excuse me, verse 27 says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The rise and fall of David. The once proud son of Israel, the passionate psalmist, is now living a lie. Now living in the shadows of his own palace. He no longer goes out to battle. He no longer honors human life. And a year after this happens, a year later, see what happens next. Chapter 12, verse 1. It says, The Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him, and he said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and he grew up with him and with his, and with his children. And used to eat of, the, of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to pay, prepare it for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And David, we know David to be a passionate man. And his response is one of anger. This is what David says. Verse 6. As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing. And because he had no pity. Nathan the prophet tells this amazing story. And says, and David says, you're right. That rich man, he deserves to die. He's done very wrong. Then the climax of Nathan's story, verse 7. Nathan said to David, you are that man. You are that man. You see, one of my fears with this story is it's easy for us to look down on David. I mean, it's easy for us to say that rotten scumbag, that dirty old man. Man, he's wrong. He's, got, he, he's so bad. Look what he did. It's almost like we, we grade ourselves based off David. I mean, we look at David and say, well, you know, look at him. He murdered somebody. I've never bur- murdered anybody. I'm so much better than David. Look at David and, and, and all that he did. You know, let's, let's skip past the deceit. Let's skip past the hypocrisy. Let's skip past the lying. Let's just look and say, he committed murder. He comm- I'm so much better than him. And so we elevate ourselves over David, commenting about how bad David is. Let me just suggest to you that David's sin is not any greater than your sin or my sin. Ours just hasn't been recorded for everybody to read. What if your worst day, what if your worst week, what if your worst month was recorded for all to read? Would you still feel so Elevated. You see, the goal in David's story is not that we should feel proud that we aren't David. What we have to do is connect this story to you and to me. Don't think of David as, as Nathan is speaking to David. Think of him speaking to you and to me. I am that man. You are that woman. You are that man. See, what you and I need to do is we need to see ourselves in the story. 
and realize this story could be about any one of us on our worst day. Maybe it was any one of us last week or the week before that. Maybe we didn't commit adultery with Bathsheba, but what is that sin that you don't want anyone to know about? What is that thing that's sitting in your closet that you're trying to hide, hoping nobody finds out? You see, it's not us being sinless that makes us a man or woman after God's own heart. It's how you and I deal with our sin that makes us a man or woman after God's own heart. Because here is David. He's confronted by his sin. And he's going to show us the kind of heart that we should display when confronted by our sin. He's going to show us a heart of repentance. David's response in verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. This should be the one verse in your Bible in this whole passage that is circled, that is starred, that is underlined. Go ahead and underline your neighbor's Bible as well. It should be highlighted. If we could put blinking lights on it, this is the one I want you to remember. Because this is the kind of heart that we need to have regarding our sin. A heart of repentance. Yeah, we might not have committed adultery with Bathsheba. We might have not had Uriah killed, but we sin. And it's how we deal with our sin that either is going to push us farther away or going to turn us into a man or woman after God's own heart. David's confession is so short. If you want to read it more fully, you can turn to Psalm chapter 51. Psalm 51 is what David penned at this very moment when he is confessing his sin. And what David does in this very short confession is he's going to show us what true repentance is. You know, sometimes we think we practice repentance and we're really sorry. Actually, we're really sorry we got caught. We're not really sorry for the sin. So David, through this very simple confession, is going to show us what true repentance is. The first thing about true repentance, it is, it is open, unguarded admission of our sin. Look what David said in verse 13. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. Psalm 51, verses 3 and 4. David says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done evil in your sight. See, when we, when we are confronted with our sin and we try and hold back the truth, maybe we only want to tell a small little part of it, that's not true repentance. I mean, let's be honest. When somebody comes to you and says, I know what you've done. You're thinking, how much do you know? How much do you know? How much do I have to tell? I know what you did last weekend. Well, which part of last weekend do you know? Because I don't want to say the whole thing. I'll just give you as much as you know. So that way it looks like I'm off the hook. True repentance means we confess our sin. We're open about it all. We're not trying to hide it. We're not trying to pretend that we are better than we really are. It's open, honest, unguarded admission of our sin. Second thing about true repentance is true repentance uh, is a desire to make a complete break from sin. See, repentance, repentance isn't just feeling sorry for your sin. It's actually having a desire to turn around, to move in the opposite direction, to make a complete break with what's going on. David's Son Solomon, he wrote in Proverbs 28, he said, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them 
will obtain mercy. We have to be willing to make a complete break from that sin. Third thing about true repentance is it leads to a broken spirit and to humility. David says it best in Psalm chapter 51. It says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it to you. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. We think about our sin. We think about what we've done wrong. God, I'm sorry, you know, I'll just, I'll give more of the offering on Sunday. And God, then you'll, then we'll move past this. God, I'll serve in the church, and then we can move past it. No, David just said, you don't desire a burnt offering. You don't desire a sacrifice. Verse 17, Psalm 51 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. See, you know you haven't truly repented if you quickly revert back to pride when you don't get the results you want. Oh, I've repented. I should be forgiven of everything. I shouldn't have to deal with the consequences. And then when there's consequences, oh, well, God, uh, I'm turning my back on you now. No, true repentance leads to a broken spirit, leads to humility. There's no anger. There's no pride. There's no bitterness. True repentance makes no demands. It has no expectations because broken and humble people are just grateful to be alive. Finally, true repentance is claiming God's forgiveness and his restoration. The first thing that Nathan said to David after David's confession, says in verse 13, Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Now, I want to be clear here. I mean, David turned away from God and he lived according to the flesh. And when we walk away from God, there's usually consequences. When you play with fire, chances are you're going to get burned. And when you walk away from God and you live for yourself, you live in sin, chances are there's going to be consequences for your sin. Nathan lays out four consequences of David's sin pretty clearly. Verse 10, he says, the sword won't depart from David's house. We see this happen a little bit later as David's son Absalom murders his half-brother. Second consequence, verse 11. It says, evil will rise up against David out of his own house. We saw that in son, his son Absalom's rebellion. Verse 11 says, David, your wives will be taken from you and given to your neighbor. Again, Absalom. Absalom, he's a real piece of work, you know. He takes his wife, his dad's concubines for himself. He fulfills that. Verse 14, another consequence of his sin. says, the child born to Bathsheba shall die. There are consequences to our sin. And the temptation is to look at this and say, oh, look, God is, is really giving it to David. I mean, God's, God's punishing him. God's judgment is coming down on David right here, right now. But listen, don't confuse the consequences of sin. Don't confuse playing with fire as God's judgment. Don't confuse the consequences of our sin as God's judgment. Because there is a difference between our own consequences for our stupidity than God's judgment. There is no sin that God is unwilling to forgive. There's no sin that any one of us in here can commit that God is unwilling to forgive. God's word is absolutely clear. Romans chapter 8 says, There is therefore now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that great? There's no condemnation for us if we are in Christ Jesus. First John chapter one says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we confess our sin and we turn from it, God is, is faithful and just to forgive every one of us. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. That is what David deserves. That is what you and I deserve for our sin. We deserve death. But in God's love and in his grace, Jesus went to the cross. And he paid the price for our death. He took the judgment for our sin. He paid that death penalty for us. So we wouldn't have to experience that judgment. First Peter chapter 3 says, Christ suffered once for all for our sins. Christ suffered once. It means God's not going to judge for these sins again. The price has already been paid. When we are in Jesus, God's not going to come and judge you again because of your sin. Yes, we will deal with the consequences of our sin. Again, when we play with fire, we're going to get burned. But don't confuse that with God's judgment because God's judgment has been fulfilled through Jesus Christ on the cross. So God's word says this is what we do. We confess. We, 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 we turn back to God. And God removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. That doesn't mean he removes the consequence of our sin, but he removes our sin. And we are no longer guilty before God. This story clearly, clearly portrays a, a shift in David's story. The rest of David's life is going to be a struggle. And we're going to see David continue to deal with the consequences of his sin. That's not what, what I want you to remember out of this message. I want you to see God's grace. I want you to see God's forgiveness. I want you to see that a man and woman after God's own heart isn't perfect, isn't sinless. No, they're repentant. They're repentant. They're sensitive to the ways of God. When we've sinned, we don't justify it. We don't excuse it. We don't pass it over. We fall on our face before God and we repent and we say, I'm sorry. And it's because of God's grace, because of the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross, that we in here today have hope to be men and women after God's own heart. We just have to exhibit that repentant heart. Would you bow your head with me today? God, we read a story like David's story. And it's easy for us to elevate ourselves and say, oh, I'm better than that. God, this doesn't apply to me because I haven't done those things. God, the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he's, that he stands take heed lest he fall. God, I pray that you would help us to see ourselves in the story, that we wouldn't think we're so much greater lest we ourselves fall. God, I pray that you would help us to see our sin. Help us to see that this could be, this story could be written about me and you and any one of us in this, in this room. 
This could be our story. But God, just because we have that story doesn't mean we can't be a man or woman after God's own heart. Because God, what you ask for us is that we have a repentant heart. We have a heart that is sensitive to you, to your sin. That God, the things that you love are the things that we desire to love. The things that you hate are the things we desire to hate. And that God, when we're confronted with our sin, that we practice that true repentance. That we practice the open and unguarded admission. God, there's someone here today, that's their first step. They need to just confess before you. They need, they need to grab their spouse and confess before their spouse. They need to go to their employer. They need to go to the people around them and say, man, I need to talk to you and I need to get this off my chest and admit what's been going on. God, I pray for that person in here today that that's their step. God, I pray for that faith and that strength to take that step because that's the hardest step. That admission that we're not living according to the way that God wants us to. God, I pray that you would give us the, 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 the strength to, to make that break from our sin. That, God, we would choose to no longer walk in it. Not just to feel sorry for our sin, but, God, we would choose to turn and go the other direction. To, to break a relationship if it has to happen. To throw the computer out the window if it has to happen. That we would do whatever we have to to turn and run away from sin. God, I pray that you would help us to experience Experience a broken heart, a broken spirit in humility. And God, most importantly, I pray that you would help us to claim your forgiveness. God, we can feel pretty lousy about ourselves because we've sinned again. But God, your word is so clear. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. God, I pray that this would be the thing that we claim and we walk out in. Understanding that we become men and women because we are forgiven by Jesus. That we become men and women after God's own heart because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. That there is hope available through that. God, very simply, I think there's, there's three responses for us today. Number one, I think we need to take heed. I think we need to watch out. We can see the rise and fall of David. God, I pray that you could help us to, to not have idle hands. Help us to do the things we're supposed to be doing. God, I pray for those in here today who need to practice that repentance, that today would be the day. That even during these times of response, God, I pray that there'd be a, a willingness just to come forward to the front of the, the, the church and say, hey, pastor, could I talk with you? Could I just, just let this off my chest? Would you pray for me? Can I pray with you? God, I pray that today that they would have the, the boldness to repent. God, I pray that we would be a humble people. God, I pray for those in here who are experiencing your blessing, who have experienced your success. God, I pray that they would take heed because we know Satan will come. God, I pray that you help them to take heed, to stay humble, to continue to rely on you, not to become proud and arrogant because that's when Satan is at his strongest. God, I pray for those in here today whose hearts have been pricked. 
whose hearts are heavy. God, I pray that you would comfort them today. God, I pray that you would help them to experience the freedom and the restoration of repentance, of being in a relationship with you. That we can feel the freedom, that we aren't bound to that sin anymore, that we are free because of Jesus. I pray that today that they would feel that freedom and, and, and that, that victory come over them and, 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 and just engulf them. That they would just walk in that hope of what you've done for us. God, I pray for those in here today that are not willing to repent, that are stubborn, that are clinging. God, I pray that you would convict them. I pray, God, that you would break their heart over their sin. That, God, they would no longer try and live two lives, that they would commit wholly to you. And, God, I pray for protection over us. God, I pray that we hear these things and we would do our best to take heed lest we fall as David did. I pray, God, that you help us to stay humble. You help us to live dependently on you, not proud of how great we are and what we've achieved, but that, God, we would see all things come from you and our blessing comes from you. And that I pray that as we look at the rise and fall of David, God, I pray that we would have the ability to have, to be faithful to the things that have got us here, to rely on you, to trust in you. God, you are such a good God. I thank you for the ability that we can be men and women after your own heart because of what Jesus has done for us. And I pray, God, that we would walk in that victory today. God, we love you and we praise you. And we ask for your spirit to be with us now as we respond to your word. We ask this in your holy and precious name.